I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Welcome to the LRB podcast. I'm Adam Schatz, and my guest today is Hazel Carby, a professor emeritus of American and African-American studies at Yale, and an influential scholar of the culture and politics of the Black Atlantic. The subject of our conversation today is Isabel Wilkerson's much-discussed book about anti-Black oppression in the United States, Cast. Wilkerson's book, published in the last months of the Trump presidency, has drawn much attention for its argument that America's system of racial oppression is best understood in terms of caste, which she calls the hidden grammar behind the language of race. In that book, Wilkerson likens the way that racism works in the U.S. to other systems of domination, including caste in India and anti-Semitic persecution in the early years of Nazi Germany. But Carby argues that Wilkerson misses, and indeed erases, the most important comparison, namely the domination of black and indigenous peoples in the Americas from the era of slavery onward. Her piece is more than a review. It is an invitation to think about racism in the States and in the Americas in broader and more global terms. Uh, Hazel, you, you begin your essay on Isabel Wilkerson's book with a revealing anecdote about a visit that you made to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us a bit about what you saw there in the rotunda of the fourth floor? It was a specific figure, the Anansi. Can you, can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. I think first I would say that I began the Wilkerson piece with my visit to the museum, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, because I wanted to situate what Wilkinson was doing in her books within a wider context as a symptom of some contemporary thought rather than purely just an individual, not an individual response, I guess, to thinking about race in the United States. So... When I visited the museum, on the day I visited the museum, I actually was already looking for a stool, a stool which fit into canoes that was used for a number of things, not only for canoes, but also just in terms of practical daily life and particularly for storytelling. So the canoe seat was actually the first object that was donated to the museum. And it comes from Ecuador. It was given by um, Juan Garcia, who was actually himself uh, a sort of historian of Afro-Ecuadorian culture, particularly folk culture. The stool was, in fact, his his grandmother's, and she used it when she was sitting and telling stories and, and, and cooking. The stool was actually located on the fourth floor of the, of the museum, and I had to travel through the various other parts of the museum. The museum actually begins subterranean with the, the trade in enslaved people, and then you travel upwards through the museum. And the stool was on the fourth floor, tucked into a little cabinet. Why the stool was very important for me was because the Anansi symbol, which is carved onto the stool, it's very beautiful, it's very small, but it's it's a very beautiful object. But the Anansi symbol speaks to this wide diasporan culture 
as does the fact that the stool actually was, you know, given, uh, donated by somebody from uh, from Ecuador. So I have this, obviously, this long association with African diasporic cultures, which I distinguished from African-American studies here, for example, in the US, that it's a much, it's a much broader view of the world, a, a world view in many ways, as opposed to a national view. And so the stool for me has extraordinary potential for thinking about the African diaspora, for a way of seeing uh, African cultures in what was then called the New World, but of course it wasn't a new world. There were millions of people in this world. But it spoke to the existence of an Americas. And unfortunately, what I found in the museum was that even though this was the you know a very important and very significant donation, the rest of the museum did not in fact speak to the Americas. After you actually left the subterranean floors of the trade in enslaved human beings, which of course was a world trade, and it involved many nations, Spain and Portugal and the Dutch and the British, uh, etc. The French. Uh, and the French. After that, as you proceed up through the various floors of the museum, you become locked into um, a story of race which is nationally bound, United States bound. And I wanted to situate Isabel Wilkerson's work within this framework, that this is symptomatic of the way in which within many aspects of academic, I should say, the academic study of the descendants of Africans, it, they, become the, they become a story of the United States, epitomise the story of the United States. And of both American and Black American exceptionalism. Yeah, of the epitome, in a way, of, the national, of, the, of success, of the national story, is in fact that the rise of the of the black middle class. That's something that's also reproduced in Wilkerson. And as you say, this then becomes definitive of what is called black American history and culture, except that one of the terms that I want to struggle over is the unfortunate effect of thinking and constantly using the term America for the United States, instead of understanding that the United States is merely a region within the Americas, which is the way I actually conceive of this side of, of, of the Atlantic. So I really wanted to show both the sort of potential of this Ecuadorian stool for opening up that aspect of a diasporic, sort of more worldly view um, of, of black cultures. And yet it's a potential that has yet to be really, not well, not developed, but yet to be fully understood because the museum and Wilkerson's work wants to shut down the sort of sense of this more global view, um, wants to celebrate the nationalist view. And that's why, um, and I think the field of African-American studies, as it is practiced in the United States, has also participated in situating black history, black culture, as somehow definitively of and from originating in the United States, and that the current culture somehow epitomizes black culture. And that's why I called it symptomatic of American exceptionalism, that it is a type of American exceptionalism as well as nationalism. Now, now Hazel, it's, it's, um, it strikes me that the perspective that you've just outlined and that you bring to bear in your critique of Wilkerson is one that, um, that I very much associate with thinkers of the Black Atlantic, both British and West Indian, people like C.L.R. James and, and Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy, 
But what we often forget, I think, is that this is a perspective that was also developed by leading Black American thinkers from W.E.B. Du Bois and Richard Wright to, uh, to some extent, James Baldwin and certainly Malcolm X, a more internationalist perspective on Black experiences. You are absolutely correct. And there are these various roots and roots, if you like, of transatlantic Black culture, where Obviously, people, intellectuals from the Caribbean, activists from the Caribbean, political activists from the Caribbean, are absolutely part of the world, an international world um, of black United States intellectuals, whether they're Du Bois or uh, Baldwin or Richard Wright. But in contemporary African-American studies, and I've, I've been here for... I taught at Yale for 30 years, and before that I was at Wesleyan University. It seemed at one point that African-American studies was, was very closed as a field when it was emerging. When I first arrived in the United States, people would ask me, what is this word diaspora that you keep on going on about? That needs to be understood. That sort of resentment, I guess, needs to be understood in an African-American studies, when it was emergent, um, it was very tenuous. And it was combined with a political effort to actually import black academics into the, into the academy. I mean, they hadn't been existing in universities. So the struggle over how the field was going to be conceived, how it was actually going to be practiced, involved from the very beginning a collapse of the intellectual project with particular bodies. And so there was particular tension, if you like, with those of us who were seen not to be of the United States, but of coming from, you know, the West Indies, the Caribbean, Black Europe, whatever it was, as somehow being, you know, interlopers in this emerging field. But there really was a, it was a time of, of political fragility for African-American studies and for the who the practitioners of it was going, were going to be. Then it seemed as if the field did was open to broadening itself. And certainly in terms of how I was practicing African-American studies at Yale, we were very much a sort of diaspora department, thinking in those terms, the Americas, for example. But I would argue that there has been a turn against that, and a turn back to an increasing nationalism, which is sort of closing the doors on the international or global or more worldly view, um, whether of the Americas or even of black cultures themselves. So it's less the international W.E.B. Du Bois, who is, you know, considered and really the W.E.B. Du Bois of the Souls of Black Folk, who is celebrated, or his books reprinted, or whatever. Right. So it's Souls of Black Folk rather than Dark Waters, or the or or his later writings when he had gone into exile in Ghana. Right. Or the fact that people really are not talking about the fact that he went into exile in Ghana, but are seeing him as a United. Well, they call, they say American intellectual, but United States intellectual. But I think there's also a broader movement than that of a of a black intellectualism and internationalism that is also not so present, and it has been replaced by you know thinking about um, Afro pessimism, anti blackness, but in a very narrow you know sort of like United States nationalist frame, a very national framework. Do, do you think, Hazel, that that this development, as you've described it, has any relationship to the retreat and decline of the states in recent years? Is it a refraction of larger currents in American culture? Possibly. I'm not quite sure exactly how I would answer that, because, you know, on the one hand, you could argue that it is a sort of a very defensive stand or defensive stance, if you like. A kind of reaction to uh, the reaction to the intensifying hostility of parts of white America and the mainstreaming of white nationalism in recent years. 
Right. But I also wouldn't want to think of it as purely reactive, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a very active resurgence of the national within African-American studies. And it comes out in a number of different levels, I think. You know, there's the popular cultural level. How dare black British actors appear in Steve McQueen's film and play, you know, the enslaved? How could they possibly understand? Which is a sort of reprise, if you like, of that earlier argument that somehow you know, fields of knowledge need to be reduced to particular bodies. I mean, now here we have, they're all black bodies, but some are black United States uh, and others are sort of interlopers. So there is the, the popular culture level. But I don't know that it explains entirely what's happening at the academic level, which I would argue is actually different from what is happening on the streets and what is happening politically with um, Black Lives Matter movements, which is actually happening with activists, where I actually see with activists the importance, a recognition of the importance of, of alliances, of creating networks of solidarity with Indigenous people, um, with Latinx people, with Latina, with Latin America. I mean... Palestinians. Exactly. So there is there is that sort of international recognition of the need for solidarity with the academic evocation of uh, anti-Blackness. It is actually opposed to that vision of solidarity, particularly with Indigenous peoples. There's a there's a real strain of anti-indigeneity in Afro-pessimism, for example. So I don't want to I don't want to use a framework of what's happening within the wider United States. I want to preserve that difference between what's actually happening at the more sort of academic level, I think, with what is actually happening with those who, you know, are organizing around questions of Black Lives Matter, absolutely, you know, centrally, but also in terms of the environment, in terms of the of the wider crises um, that are being that are being fought over, you know, in terms of of health, you know, inequities across the board and social injustice across across the board. Now, I want to talk a bit more about 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 your review of Isabel Wilkerson's book. Your critique is that. Isabel Wilkerson uh, fails to connect the experience of Black Americans to uh, the experiences of Black people in the rest of the Americas. That it's a it's a it is a uh, it's a somewhat impoverished account. It's a provincializing account. Not to mention, as you said, a, a national account. Ironically. The book is put forward as an attempt to deprovincialize the study of anti-black oppression by comparing it to the caste system in India and to anti-Semitic persecution uh, in Nazi Germany. You don't say much about those comparisons in your review. And I'm wondering, do you think that the study of caste in her book is enriched at all? By those comparisons, or do you think those comparisons obscure more than they reveal? Well, actually, I wouldn't characterize them as comparisons. There isn't a deep enough study of, for example, caste in India to really make it a comparison. Rather, there is an attempt to import the term for purposes of analyzing or replacing the concept of race in the United States. Likewise, with the references to Nazi Germany, the emphasis really is on the way in which Nazi Germany, you know, looked towards the United States in terms of some of its... Right, true inspiration from Jim Crow, the the jurist who went to uh, the States. Yes, to develop those sort of practices of separation and and enhance a, a Nazi ideology. But if it was a real comparison, you would actually have to take on board and account for 
what I would characterize as the very deep roots of fascism within the United States, which is is not the, the way in which Wilkerson wants to go. I think the other problem about the way in which she wants to import caste is as a very rigid category. But what she doesn't really understand is that the, the term caste that she wants to import is a system that owes its rigidity, actually, to the to British colonialism, <laughs> that there's a very complicated story of the evolution of caste in India. And she doesn't really, and this is why it's not really a comparison, is because she doesn't actually talk about that evolution of how caste, as we understand it at the in the contemporary moment, actually is part of the negotiation and the imposition of practices by the British um, under colonialism. The, I mean, the other problem about the term is if it was a real comparison, you would have to think about its history. And caste comes from, from casta. The term is actually imported into India by the Portuguese. And if you were really going to do a comparison, you'd have to be thinking in terms of sort of the settler colonial model, which is not the one that her work is is based on, and understand, you know, and understand that these these terms are transmitted and developed in these different spaces, but it's not originally an Anglophile, an, an Anglo term. Uh, and one, you know, one of the problems is that I think contemporary African American studies is is very reluctant to to move towards settler colonial models where you have to think about divisions within humanity, not only in terms of the questions of the Manichaean divisions, black and white, but particularly indigeneity, which you had to think about uh, across the Americas and, and how indigeneity is a central term in defining what is human and what is not human. So, you know, one, one of the problems, I think, is is also with the question of origins in her work. She wants to search for origins, but really is not going back beyond British colonialism. Do you see what I mean? So so the origins themselves preclude any sort of deep analysis that would lead you to a real comparison. Mm. I, that seems very long-winded as an answer to your question. But. Well, I mean, you, you note in your review that there's, a, there's quite a rich history of writing on the relationship between race, caste, and class, class being a term that's not particularly present in Wilkerson's book for reasons that you you analyze. And uh, you refer to the work of the Trinidadian uh, American sociologist Oliver Cromwell Cox, who published a, a classic work on this in 1948, Race, Caste, and Class. Can you talk a bit about how Wilkerson deploys the concept of caste and what she hopes to gain from it that, in her view, race can't tell us, right? She sees it as this hidden grammar for the language of race. What is it about caste that is an improvement for her on racism or structural racism? To be quite honest, Adam, I'm not sure I fully understand even having read the book a number of times very, very closely. Um, the term, in fact, does emerge first in her previous book, The Warmth of Other Suns. But I don't know that it really develops in a way that I totally comprehend exactly what she wants the term to do for, for herself. So what what I do is to trace how she sees the genealogy of the term, if you like. So instead She's very dismissive of the monumental work of Oliver Cox, the classic work on race and caste and class. Instead, she turns to some anthropological uses of the term in the 30s and work that was done in the, uh, in the you know, for example, the Deep South, where the, the term caste was, was deployed. But she is extremely selective about that history and how she wants to situate where and how the term is used within work 
on race in the United States. So when she's thinking about this caste term, she doesn't actually acknowledge how in that earlier moment and the work of anthropologists on the South, it was always articulated with the question of class in their work. But she really doesn't, she doesn't go there because she really doesn't want to talk about class. So even the genealogies that I try to use have silences, have aporias. I mean, and I, I can't, I can't explain exactly what the work the cast is doing because one, when one tries to grasp it, one ends up with anecdotes. Like you, like you said, it is, you know, it is, it is the rot emerging from within, from behind the plaster in the walls of a house, or it is the grammar that holds, you know, the language. So, but it's not, but it's not clear what those structures are and how they relate to questions of political economy and class. And so what you're left with is an almost ontological, in a sense, Afro-pessimist view of the force of racism and with the analysis of racial attitudes. I mean, right, she calls for radical empathy as a means by which caste could be overcome. It's not a it's not a call to structural and political change, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's a call to feeling. It's, which is which is surprising, considering the extent to which she wants the book. It's a, it's a very large book to which she wants the book to stand as, I guess, a, a little like warmth of other suns as a sort of epic investigation of the origins. But when you actually of the origins of inequality of uh, the way in which people are treated in relation to their appearance. But when you get to the end of the book, it's rather surprising that you actually end up with feeling as opposed to social movements, for example, or as opposed to uh, the need to attend to the real, well, not just attend to, but transform the deep structures of, of inequality. But I think if you really, if she really had gone there to the importance of overturning the deep structures of inequality, then you couldn't possibly have avoided talking about class or, for that matter, gender, which is also absent in this analysis. The impression one gets from your review, Hazel, is that for all of Wilkerson's ambition, for all of her desire to put forward an account that explains the oppression experienced by black Americans as a whole, uh, her book is ultimately symptomatic of a very middle class uh, black experience. As you describe it, uh, caste is really a middle class lament, an expression of despair over the continuing caste discrimination experienced by more upper-class members of the Black American population. Poor and working-class Black Americans seem not to figure much in her account. Another reviewer of Wilkerson's book, uh, the Indian historian Sunil Kilnani, wrote in The New Yorker, Many scenes involve whites failing to recognize the status of successful Blacks like the white man having recently moved into a wealthy suburb who mistakes his elegant black neighbor for the woman who picks up his laundry. As for how cask dynamics affect those black Americans who really do pick up the laundry, or shell the shrimp, or clean the motel rooms, Wilkerson has little to say. At one point, she implies that poor people of color are in some ways more fortunate than wealthier ones because they have fewer stress-related health problems. Would you say that's fair, Hazel? Are we uh, really looking at uh, a work that is symptomatic of a much narrower, narrower experience than it purports to be? Well, Wilkerson does place herself among this group. I mean, I like your word lament. Um, it is a lament. Um, she... Wilkerson is very clear that she is part of this group. She is very clear, and she has stories and anecdotes about how she herself, um, as a very, very successful 
highly educated black woman is discriminated against. And the lament involves her turning to um, medical research, which she says indicates that it is in fact the middle class who suffer most from the various illnesses, hypertension and stress, which can lead to uh, bodily weakness, um, that it's the most successful, it's the most highly educated that in fact suffer most. So she 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 actually does attempt to situate sort of scientific research to shore up this lament for the middle class. I think I would have to say that I see in some ways it's symptomatic of a, dare I say, a black establishment sort of point of view. I mean, remember that this book was a bestseller long before it was actually even published. And so what is it about this view that she promotes that is part of a way in which African America wants to see itself at the moment? And and I'm I want to separate a black establishment, for example, from social movements um, in the streets and from a young from a younger generation agitating for profound social transformation. It seems rather se- it seems as almost as if it's written from a separate world, mm. and so it's it's lament is not for those people, you know. Right, but but isn't that sense um, just in her in her defense? Isn't that sense of lament, of despair, um, and of also of fury at still being marked, right? Still being racially marked and stigmatized in spite of one's professional accomplishments, isn't that also uh, quite understandable and and also a worthy subject of exploration in the book? I don't want to say it doesn't happen. Of course it happens. It happens every single day. Um, you know, if you're a, a black person in a suit in a university, somebody's going to ask you to take out the trash. Um, or to uh, you know to assume that somehow you're actually part of the custodial stuff. There's a lot that could be said about the inequalities that the black establishment, that black intellectuals face. Yes, obviously, I'm not deny. I don't want to deny that that happens. But do we actually have to see it as somehow the epitome of, cont- of the experience? The epitome yeah. of the experience or the epitome of discrimination as it is currently being practiced? I mean, are there differences if you actually live in, um, you know, a a wealthy area of the United States and can afford to send your child to, uh, your black child to a private school, um, as opposed to those who are, who have to suffer, you know, very, very, very deep, consequences for living in a poor area, consequences which mean inadequate health care, consequences where you're not going to have a choice of education for your child. So I don't what I'm saying is do we have do we have to separate these stories? It's it's not a it's a question that is really not different from do we have to actually separate what's happening in the United States from the rest of the Americas. I think... Well, well and, actually, and actually, you you point out in your review, Hazel, that uh, the experience of Black people from the other Americas, from the Caribbean and from Latin America, are hardly absent from the history of the United States. In the early 20th century, uh, many Caribbean migrants... Uh, came to the States. Uh, It was a different great migration, but a great migration nonetheless. It was the subject of a very interesting book by a former professor of mine, Winston James, called Holding Aloft the Banner of Ethiopia. Oh, yes, I know it very well. And and as you know, uh, some of the leading figures in the civil rights movement, uh, notably Stokely Carmichael, were from Caribbean families. Uh, So it's not as if this history isn't a part of the U.S. story, it is. It just it's just that we choose to overlook it. And the question is why? I think. What does the absence serve? I mean, you mentioned 
Oliver Cromwell Cox and his monumental work, Race, Caste and Class. But it seems to me it's also symptomatic of some deeper, would I call it resentment? I don't know. Um, When he's just purely dismissed as as someone from the Caribbean. As contentious and no, and cantankerous. How how does one account for the absence? I guess when you're absolutely right about the centrality of both political activists and intellectuals from the Caribbean, but also, you know, a whole professional class um, that emerged um, in Harlem in the 1930s, but. Why tell the story, I think is my question, as if those people weren't there. I mean, Wilkerson would have to answer this for herself, obviously, and I can I can speculate about it, but I think it is profoundly symptomatic of the way in which um, multiple doors are being closed on other complexities, international complexities of the black population in favour of somehow you know, a, a, what, a pure United States black citizen, which somehow, as we've said, is already, anyway, narrowly class-defined. So I, d- I don't know why, but there are many, many indications of a sort of implicit resentment of these interlopers. I don't know how to put it any other way, really. I remember reading a, a recent interview that that you gave, um, in which you recalled meeting Henry Louis Gates Jr. when you were a graduate student, um, and I think he asked you something like, "You know, what's a what what what's a nice white lady doing studying the history of uh, of, of of black culture?" And uh, you say in that interview that you became aware around that time that there was very little understanding in black studies departments, African-American studies departments in the States with West Indian history, with diaspora. Can can you talk a little bit about that experience? It was an interesting experience because it was the first time that people had, it's growing up in Britain, that had never happened that anybody would possibly, you know, have thought that I was, that I was white. So there was there was that aspect of the shock of it, but then there was also a sort of sense of um, realizing the way in which you, you know, bodies and the way they appeared were then supposed to be locked into certain fields of knowledge. So I thought that ambiguity and that contradiction taught taught me a lot about how people were imagining the field would develop. I mean, I began. I began by literally just offering questions, offering courses on Caribbean literature, for example, um, and branched out over the years from that from all sorts of complex ways of being able to situate um, black studies in a much more international perspective, Um, whether you're thinking sort of geopolitically, whether you're thinking in terms of insisting upon that term, the Americas, as opposed to, you know, the United States. So my my entire career has been engaged, if you like, with broadening this thinking, with training generations of of students. Um, Adam Getchachow's wonderful sort of you know new book. There's they're literally all all over the all over the country. But I just wonder about the contemporary moment when what seemed to be opening up is possibly being closed down. And why I use terms like, I don't know, the, you know, the black is ex- establishment or examples of the, um, the museum of African-American history and culture in, in Washington, DC is that all those scholars were not really involved in putting together the way of seeing uh, that the museum is offering to the world. It doesn't seem that Isabel Wilkerson has herself experienced, you know, an education that allows her to sort of imagine this much wilder, wider diasporic world and to understand the importance of the way in which migrants from the Caribbean black migrants 
from Latin and South America, from Mexico, are an important part of the story. And so I'm not, it's not clear to me that the educative purpose of the museum or the sort of education that a figure like Wilkerson herself, and I'm just, you know, I'm I'm trying to use her as an example, have actually benefited from that wider history, from all the people who are doing work on, you know, Black Mexico or Black Ecuador um, or the Caribbean um, or its literature, um, the way in which, you know, that that you you can think of, even if you just want to think of North America, all all the, the Black residents of, of, of Canada, the extraordinary literature being produced uh, by Black Canadian intellectuals and academics. Why, I think my, my question about ways of seeing is, what's being cut off here and, and why? Why is it that all these years of apparently opening up the potential of African-American studies as a, as a worldly um, and, pos- and, and sort of a planetary exercise, why is it now being bound within these national blinkers, I think is the word I would, I would, have, to, uh, I would have to use. And it's unclear to me that Isabel Wilkerson really understands or has been educated in this history. And I- how, how, do you, how do you think a perspective like uh, Wilkerson's is likely to resonate among, for example, Black Britons? I, I think of the fact that the United States, sorry, Black America, by, by virtue of, uh, of uh, the power of the United States, but also by virtue of the tremendous vitality, energy, and power of uh, Black American culture, Black America has had has such tremendous influence in Black diaspora communities abroad. Black Americans are really looked to as, as, uh, as leaders, as models of inspiration, and that certainly was the case uh, this summer. Uh, with the uh, protests after the uh, the murder of George Floyd, how is a perspective like this likely to resonate among Black Britons? To take one example, I I really I don't know how it's going to resonate among Black Britons. I do know that it is received as you know this best selling blockbuster of a study, if you like, about the United States. But I'm not. It's unclear to me that in Britain it would. It it could be just transported that caste would somehow replace. I don't think the analysis would just be transported as somehow you know applying to the to the United Kingdom if that's what you were thinking about. But on the other hand, I would say that when you're thinking about the international power and presence of poets, musicians. Um, and their works, I think you'll also, if you think about it, think about how they were also part of an international formation, how, you know, musical forms have not respected or obeyed national boundaries. Not at all, not at all. Uh, All the borrowings, all the inspiration um, is, is extremely diasporic. So, you know that's and the lit, I think in terms of the literature too. So it's it's unclear to me that um, th- the power is nationally bound. I don't think it is. I don't think it ever has been. Now, Hazel, whether or not we endorse Isabel Wilkerson's analysis of caste, it's clear that she is trying. Uh, to address uh, a very real problem that uh, bedevils American society, namely the persistence of the color line and the persistence of racism and white supremacy. And as we know, this problem is anything but academic or discursive, uh, as we saw last week with the storming of the Capitol by a mob, uh, many of them carrying uh, the Confederate flag. Well, my reaction to the events of January 6th was not only about the incursion into the capital itself, it was about the coverage of the incursion. And one one of the things that appalled me from the very very beginning, actually, was the way in which uh, the commentators were, quote-unquote, shocked 
because they said what they were seeing, this is America. This is not the third world. This is a democracy. This is not, I mean, they may have, they may as well, well this is not a, have been this is using not. Donald Trump's term, we are not a shithole country. Right. I'm sorry, but they were. It was offensive. It was appalling. Um, and yet this was how what we saw, what was being shown, the film, the clips, was being characterized. This is not a banana republic, of course, was another. As if, as, as if the United States hadn't also been implicated in the creation and sustaining of many banana republics. Right. The coverage was very symptomatic of the way in which, in fact, the media has bought many of Trump's narratives. Many of actually of those white supremacist narratives um, and nationalist narratives that puts America first. And, and so that was one way in which I thought what I was trying to get at about United States nationalism and exceptionalism was being enacted in the coverage of those events. Right. And I, th- and I think you're, you're suggesting that, that to some extent, even in a passionately and clearly anti-racist tome like cast, we see the recapitulation of a narrative in this in which uh, America stands apart. Oh, not just stands apart, stands above. Or above, whether whether in the 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 ostensible virtue of its political traditions, yes, or in uh, the evil of its oppression, yes, or or for that matter, in the redemptive narrative, which is obviously an incredibly powerful aspect of of Black American culture, the kind of the redemptive struggle against oppression. But it's hardly unique to the states. I mean, one finds it in all the other cases that you describe of resistance to racial oppression in the Americas. I mean, I think people, the media, uh, political pundits, I think people are struggling to name what they saw happening. I think they're struggling to really sort of try and articulate what to think about what they saw um, in in that intrusion. Um, But it's leading to, well, first of all, I think I would want to say the shock really completely alienated me. I mean, it was white people who were being shocked. And it isn't, it wasn't that somehow this was a culmination of four years of Trump being in the White House. Because... We knew what Trump was before he was elected. My son actually phoned me when everything exploded on the televisions. My son telephoned me from Denver to ask if I was all right because he knew I wasn't going to be all right. And we were talking about, we were part of, uh, we were remembering being part of the anti-inauguration, the huge anti-inauguration demonstration that took place in Denver that went to the to the Denver Capitol at the time. And all of us knew what we were going to get. Everyone knew what we were going to get. Everyone understood that this was a triumph of white supremacy. It was a triumph of white nationalist thinking. And it has been enabled by more than the occupant of the White House. And even those who apparently you know, were, were never Trumpians, soon got on board. So it, it's symptomatic, I think, of a much longer history, but also of the denial of the history, as I mentioned earlier, the history of fascism in the United States. People do not want to want to acknowledge that history. Hence the comparisons with Nazi Germany or France in 1934 and but not the, but not with but, but not with Jim Crow, not with the practices right. of lyn- of of lynching, not in fact with um the, the KKK, not with the enti- not just those as individual instances, but as the entire structure that of course in fact ends up being embodied in the constitution in the 13th amendment, which allows, you know, slavery to continue. <laughs> If a crime has been committed, you know, which is the roots then of incarcerating a black population and uh, ensuring its subordination 
so that's the history I wish we could make more more visible. And so when I believe it was Mike Davis, I think actually in 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 the Guardian, in either his first or second sentence, characterized what he was seeing, what was being revealed by that intrusion as a dark comedy. And I was thinking, for whom is this funny? It's an extraordinarily insensitive remark from one of the, you know, our leading intellectuals or whatever, which doesn't understand how black people have had to run from those people wielding baseball bats. Literally, one of them had literally one of the that was happening actually in the capital itself. There are now all these. There are now narratives emerging actually that those capital police were not being all treated the same. They were not all welcoming the intrusion. Many of them, you know, were being abused um, physically and verbally um, as black bodies. So. I think there's a misunderstanding even of the nature of the spectacle of it. Spectacle has, the spectacle of white supremacy has always been extremely important in the sort of subordination and the violence enacted about, upon black bodies. Spectacle was key to lynching. You, th- you, th- you think of the photographs of lynching and the smiles and people holding up photographs of, of bodies that have been mutilated. Right, that I've written about in, in the past. In fact, I compared, you know, those photographs and the importance of the spectacle of lynching to the photographs which emerged from um, from Abu Ghraib, for example. But these these are key. I mean, postcards, The these images were put on postcards and circulated, you know, wish you were here, postcards. This this is a very deep fascist you know history, and we we don't come to terms with it at our own risk because seventy four seventy five million people actually still voted for Trump. Are we really going to get to the roots of what a massive portion of the people in the U.S. believe? Uh, certainly not if we belittle events like this, or if we ignore the nexus of cruelty and pleasure. In this politics, well, I mean, Derek Chauvin was very aware of being filmed, but for whom was he performing? Actually, when he was looking at the character, uh, uh, the camera, he wasn't performing from you know Daniela, who was holding the phone. He was performing for this film to be circulated on what is it they call the dark net on all the alternative alt right outlets for people to get vicarious pleasure. From this nine minute snuff film. Absolutely. So that's what we need to understand is the importance of the vicariousness of the spectacle of, of white supremacy. Uh, Hazel, thank you so much for joining us on the LRB podcast. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Adam. It was a very sort of thoughtful and uh, provocative conversation. You can read Hazel Carby's piece on Isabel Wilkerson's cast online now. It's also in the next issue of the London Review of Books. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.